Welcome to the Paraxel podcast, where we discuss the issues, trends, and innovations shaping the development and patient access to new drug therapies. Because we're all driven by the same goal, to make life better and improve the odds of survival for patients. I am Alberto Grignolo, Corporate Vice President at Paraxel, and today we are discussing one of the most exciting and promising areas of drug development, cell therapy. Specifically, we will be discussing the evolution of CAR T-cell therapy, also called chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, or CAR-T for short. This serves as an example of the impact and hope of this new class of treatments, as well as some of the associated challenges. By the way, the U.S. National Cancer Institute defines CAR T-cell therapy as a type of treatment in which a patient's T-cells, which are a type of immune cell, are changed in the laboratory so that they will bind to cancer cells and kill them. Today, I'm joined by three special guests to help us delve into this cutting-edge topic. Doug Olson was among the first patients treated with CAR-T nine years ago. Today, Doug is in remission works as CEO of a medical diagnostics company, and has committed much of his time to helping other patients through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and other groups. Doug, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Alberto. To discuss the regulatory implications of CAR-T today, we're also joined by Dr. Mo Hederan, an NIH-trained scientist with in-depth industrial product development, managerial experience, and FDA regulatory expertise in cell and gene therapy and tissue engineering. Mo came to Paraxel from the FDA, where he served as a center-wise subject matter expert within the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, CBER, to define CMC policies and manage regulatory review processes. Mo, welcome. Uh, thank you so much, Alberta. Alexander G. is also joining us today to discuss market and patient access to cell therapies like CAR-T. Alex has had a long career on the commercial side of the pharma industry, and more recently consulting on market access issues on the CRO side for close to 10 years. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alberto. Alex, Mo, and I are all members of Paraxel's regulatory and access consulting organization, where we aim to help biotech companies tackle the regulatory and access hurdles that can be significant challenges to bringing new therapies to market and, importantly, to patients. As we know, it's well documented that CAR-T holds much promise, as it moves into new indications, and we'll get to those later. But in order to understand the path ahead, first let's look back. As I mentioned, Doug was among the first patients treated with CAR-T nine years ago. Doug, uh, starting with you, would you please share with us your experience and what it was like for you to undergo CAR-T therapy in those early days? Uh, thank you, Alberto. Uh, I'd be happy to. I w was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia in 1996. At that point in time, the only th cure for uh, CLL was a bone marrow transplant, which unfortunately had a, only a survival rate of 50%. So I didn't consider that to be a very viable treatment for my CLL. The recommendation was that we do watchful waiting, which is basically continue to... Um, monitor the cancer to see whether or not um, it was going to continue to um, be a problem. Uh, I was pretty lucky. I didn't need a lot, of, a lot of treatment for a number of years. But by the time uh, 2010 came around, uh, my CLL was about 50% of my bone marrow. 
and uh, it had mutated to the point where it would not respond to normal chemotherapy. It was at this point that my physician, my oncologist, Dr. David Porter, sat me down and he said, Doug, you'd be a good candidate for a new clinical trial. So I decided to join the clinical trial and became patient number two in the CAR-T clinical trial in 2010. The day the treatment started, uh, it seems like it was just yesterday, I was sitting in a, a, uh, an infusion chair. I was hooked up to an IV. My modified T-cells were then hooked up to my IV. The infusion took maybe five minutes, and absolutely nothing happened. This was repeated for the next two days, and again, really nothing happened at all. But then, t- two weeks later, um, I woke up. I felt like I had the flu, only um, it was quite a bit worse. This persisted for a little over a week. I eventually had to be hospitalized because my, my kidneys were starting to get into trouble. But I was treated for that. Next day, I felt very good. And I think it was that day that my doc walked in, Dr. Porter walked into my hospital room, and he said, Doug, 18% of your white cells are CAR-19 cells, which meant that the treatment was working, that my my, uh, T-cells were reproducing and killing cancer cells. And it was just the week after that that I was sitting at Penn again with Dr. Porter, and he told me that they were not able to find a single cancer cell in my body that my bone marrow was completely cancer-free. And that's when I knew I was going to be okay. Wow, Doug, what a story. Uh, Thank you for sharing that with us. And I have to say your perspective as a patient is is very important, so important for the growth of this new therapy, this new therapy class and the patient's access to it. What an experience. Could I ask you, how did you feel about participating in this clinical trial? Well, when when you're a cancer patient, being told that you're basically out of options. When you're given an opportunity, even though you don't know what the outcome is going to be, to have a chance at surviving, um, you take it. And that's exactly how I felt, that this was, this was a chance to fight back, that, that I just I didn't have to just wait and sit there and wait for the cancer to, to beat me. It was a chance to beat the cancer. Um, after my, uh, my treatment and, and my cure, uh, one of the things that I decided was important was, was to um, be able to give back. So I became involved with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. I um, became involved in their advocacy program and also in what they call the First Connections program, where um, cancer patients that are newly diagnosed get to talk to former cancer patients to ask questions, and basically start to come to grips with the fact that they have cancer and that they're going to be going through certain treatments, get to ask uh, former cancer patients what it's like, and provide that kind of support. The advocacy part of of what I was involved in had to do initially with uh, advocating for changes in the laws so that the new cancer treatments would be covered by insurance companies and by Medicare and Medicaid. Eventually, um, I was asked to be on a um, CMS panel considering whether or not Medicare was going to cover 
the very expensive uh, CAR-T treatments that had just been approved. The good news is that uh, CMS has agreed as of last August 2019 to cover the CAR-T treatments, which is um, wonderful news for cancer patients. Also, um, to my knowledge, most major insurance companies now also cover the CAR-T treatments. Doug, thank you for that perspective. Let me move now to a couple of other aspects that are relevant to CAR-T therapy, and that is the regulatory review and approval process and the market access process, both of which are important gateways to patient access to cell therapy. So turning now to Mo and Alex, I would like them to provide some context for us. Mo, perhaps, would you like to start with the regulatory side of things? Yes, thank you for your question, Alberto. From regulatory perspective, obviously, these uh, new products uh, being a living drug, they're very complex uh, type of products. As Doug alluded to, uh, materials has to be collected from the patient, and then material has to be transduced and become active and potent against the patient's tumor. And obviously, the selection of the antigens that exist uh, and found in the patient tumor is very important. I'm uh, stating this fact because uh, essentially, because of uh, this complexity, the manufacturing in this field has become uh, a challenging roadblock. The fundamental issue here is really production of these products, these living products, uh, reproducibly and consistently using uh, materials that are available in the market. And because of the availability of the critical manufacturing material, the cost of uh, products such as CAR-T are extremely high, uh, half of, um, approximately half of the cost associated with the material and labor. And that uh, really has become a roadblock uh, for further development. So from regulatory perspective, um, really important for manufacturers and sponsors and the drug companies to really think about these products as complex therapeutics that would entail not only actually manufacturing at the clinical and manufacturing at the at the uh, CMO or other entities, but also consider collection of the material from the patient, manufacturing at the CMO, and then transport of those products to the patient at the clinical site and transfusion. So the whole process is very complex, and as a result, that you know, really looking at it from the regulatory perspective, there has to be a huge number of um, consideration that has to be in place from manufacturer's side. So I, I would say manufacturing is the major challenge for CAR-T programs, and this is something that being addressed by the field as we go forward. Is the FDA or our other agencies addressing this manufacturing challenge with uh, guidances, with feedback, uh, any, any input from regulators in relation to these manufacturing challenges? Yes, uh, FDA is uh, quite aware of these challenges. Uh, fundamentally, they have been working with several consortium 
in that are private public partnership in in the field such as nimble uh, such as Army and others that are really looking at the better way of manufacturing these products to automate manufacturing, to make it much more reproducible, to work on availability of the critical raw material that would be cost effective and, and doing their best uh, to actually um, help the industry to develop better platforms for manufacturing and help with the reproducibility in this field. So there's a huge amount of the private-public partnerships uh, that are ongoing that would really facilitate this process. In addition, they have really published a numerous number of guidance documents for the industry. Recently, there were seven of them that was highlighted that really focus on gene-modified cells, you know, looking at the safety of these products, looking at long-term follow-up, looking at possibility of um, how to deal with safety issue, etc. Those guidance documents are really helpful for the industry and FDA is really has focus on publishing and really trying to address the key elements and challenges that are witnessed in this in this field. Thank you, Mo. Uh, Alex, let me turn to you. Can you share with us what is the current picture for the reimbursement of CAR-T therapies? Certainly. Largely, CAR-T therapies are reimbursed to some degree um, in Europe, and as we've just heard from Doug in the US as well. But um, it's taken quite a lot of work by the manufacturers to get to that point, and it's required some fairly innovative thinking. There is a fundamental disconnect, I think, with the most of the payer mechanisms that were set up in a traditional small white pill era with a phase one, phase two, phase three kind of structure. And as we see these new cell therapies, gene therapies coming through, it creates a challenge not only in terms of the fundamental data that's supporting them, but also in the mechanisms and processes that exist to, pro to process them and make them available for patients. In a very broad sense, if we think about uh, these therapies, we're looking at potential long-term curative benefits in areas of severe unmet need conditions, which frankly is what most payers and, and clinicians are looking for. But we're also seeing that evidence packages, partially helped by uh, streamlined regulatory processes, create fundamental challenges there. There's no comparative data, which is very important for payers to understand the incremental benefit they're getting for treatment. There's no long-term data typically, which means there's no real assessment of the durability of the benefit. And of course, because most of these comprise a single upfront treatment, there's a substantial budget impact in the short term and substantial risk for the payers in the longer term. So for all those reasons, people have struggled with them, but I think it's fair to say that payers want to make them available but need to understand the best way of doing that. Can you share with us some cases where reimbursement has been a challenge or any successes uh, in relation to CAR-T reimbursement? Certainly, certainly. I think the most obvious um, comparison is probably between NICE and SMC. NICE has a mechanism referred to as the CDF, the Cancer Drugs Fund, and that allows them to do a provisional approval. 
So they approve a drug for reimbursement to, for a three-year period, during which time the manufacturer is expected to gather more data to support its full reimbursement. That's very practical in this space because obviously it allows a greater patient database to be built up. The SMC in Scotland doesn't have that same flexibility that NICE have been able to build in. So it's not necessarily that the that the payers don't want to, it's that the mechanisms that they use to assess it don't match up to the evidence package that these products are coming to market with. So what should the sponsors do to try to persuade payers uh, in a more expeditious manner? Sure. I mean, I think the, the a lot of the focus has been on innovative reimbursement schemes. Um, we're seeing uh, a lot of products coming with a whole suite of these uh, in cell and gene therapies. So that's things like financial risk sharing, uh, performance-based payments. So in other words, tying the reimbursement to clinical practice and the performance of individual patient outcomes. We've seen um, uh, some dynamic pricing and we've seen um, payment by installments being put in place. Again, just to soften this risk and just to soften the immediate upfront impact for the um, reimbursement. I think the other thing that um, a lot of uh, manufacturers should be, be thinking about is thinking about this stuff much earlier than they currently do. It takes a lot of time to um, to work some of these things through, to test them, to find these novel mechanisms. And it's very important when you're through the evidence gathering stage to, to build in some of the payer considerations early on as well. Yeah, to build on that, I'd like to ask you both, Mo and Alex, uh, you work with companies every day, uh, companies that are developing these therapies or may develop them in the future. So I'd like to ask you a couple of things. Uh, first, what advice would you give these companies so they can be better positioned to help patients like Doug get the therapy that they need? And secondly, are there things that these companies could be doing all along the development process to help make the regulatory and payer hurdles more surmountable? so they can actually help more patients like Doug. Mo, perhaps uh, let me ask you first uh, to comment on these two points, please. Yes, thank you, Alberto. One of the, the major challenge in this field is really identifying novel tumor antigens uh, for development of new products in this field. There is uh, some challenges in regard to the loss of tumor antigens in patients that are treated with some of these products, which is commonly labeled as antigen escape. And there are additional complications in this area. And also there are issues re regarding the cytokine release syndrome that is associated with these products. So most uh, companies these these fields are developing novel technology to address safety issues such as cytokine release syndrome. And also they're trying to identify novel targets that are found in the tumor that would allow them to actually treat patients that undergo relapse, etc. So um, there's a large amount of activity in that space. My advice to, to all of them is uh, to really to think ahead, as Alex alluded to, to think about uh, not only the technology hurdles, but also regulatory hurdles. And one 
what they can learn from the existing platform technologies and what they can learn from already approved products. And uh, in a sense, really, the fundamentally, you know, the, there are some regulatory consideration that can be applied and can be translated uh, into the development of the new product. And so that learning has, to, that institutional knowledge and that learning has to be transferred as much as possible. And that's why I'm very excited to be at Paracel to be able to communicate some of those learning to others in the field. Thanks, Mo. Alex, what about your thoughts? Thank you. Yes, I think um, generally I would advise earlier consideration of access. I think a lot of the time we have companies who are very focused on getting across that regulatory hurdle and then not recognizing that that evidence package is also going to have to meet another group of stakeholders who present a barrier to patient access. I think I would also caution that I hear very often people talk about leveraging real-world evidence to fill the gaps in their package. And while that's a very strong tool and very important, there is a sort of catch-22 in that space that where technology is not reimbursed, you're not generating the local data, you're not generating the data the payers want, therefore you don't get onto the market, and therefore this cycle continues. So there is a, a piece there where I would suggest things like early access programs and so forth should be considered um, quite quickly and that real world evidence is not a, a cure-all to fill all the gaps in the data package. The other piece that I think is um, often uh, overlooked is that we tend to think in reimbursement in terms of price as in the list price that a government or an insurer will pay. But with these complex therapies, they have a, a whole raft of administration and, and um, logistical costs attached as well. And those can be significant barriers to the health economic argument. So there are questions such as if a patient deteriorates and cannot have a CAR-T therapy given to them, but that CAR-T has been manufactured, who is responsible for the cost and for, for covering that? Um, if a patient is coded and requires a long time in hospital again some of the hospital coding systems for reimbursement don't necessarily reflect that cost so there are aspects like that as well that need to be mapped out quite early on in the process to ensure uptake and finally what we've been seeing uh, more recently is there is a sheer cash flow issue in terms of acquiring these products in some regions the care provider has to buy the product and then bill later which is a model that works well for comparatively low priced medications but creates a challenge for uh, some of these higher priced ones and of course where patients make significant out-of-pocket contribution um, there is a, a whole challenge there so these are not insurmountable problems but they are ones that need some time and thought addressed to them early so that they don't delay patient access post-regulatory approval. Uh, Alex, when you say early, uh, how early do you mean? The classic sweet spot for market access input is between phases two and three. But obviously, with a lot of these products, we're not really following that that model. As we move into gene therapies and so forth, we're, we're not going to see those, those same routes. So uh, I would say at the point at which you're building your regulatory package you should be having these conversations. The point at which you're mapping out 
whatever trial is going to be your evidence to support your engagement with FDA and EMA, that's the point you need to be thinking about how you engage with payers as well. You mean having conversations with payers as early as late phase one, early phase two, perhaps? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are many mechanisms that allow you to have formal consultation with the payers. But I would also state that the value of having early informal conversation with the payers is very high. It allows you to, in a risk-free environment, throw ideas around and iterate ideas. Once you go to formal advice, you're in a very similar situation as when you seek formal advice from the regulators. You are kind of bound to accept that advice, or at least you have to explain why you haven't. So, yeah, absolutely. Early informal advice, early discussion with payers, testing ideas, and then preparing for formal advice later on. Right. Uh, Mo, in your experience as a former regulator, are regulators, in fact, open to companies adding uh, endpoints and, and measures to clinical protocols that will certify payers, but may not necessarily be of uh, great interest to regulators. Is there a kind of divergence of interest there between regulators and payers, or is there a convergence of interest for the benefit of patients? What did, what did you see as a regulator? As a regulator, I think it is going to be very important to collect more information, patient data, as much as possible. FDA perspective is that the more you collect, the more data you collect uh, in regard to the patient outcome and efficacy, the better the, the package would be. But from regulatory perspective, the, the, the clinical endpoint that FDA agrees to, those are the consideration for regulatory approval. And extended knowledge of the patient outcome and clinical outcome is going to be important uh, from payer perspective as well. I think the two are not, are complementary, and there is a convergence that I would consider to be beneficial uh, for the company to consider going forward. All right. All right. Thank you. Uh, finally, in the few minutes remaining, um, let me move to our final topic. Today, we have focused our conversation on CAR-T, but of course, there are a number of other cell and gene therapies that look promising. Mo, uh, first uh, from you, what are you most excited about in this area in just a few seconds? Yes, uh, I probably need more than a few seconds, but uh, I, I wanted to focus on a couple of areas. One one thing is uh, just to expand upon a CAR-T. The expansion of CAR-T programs into solid tumor is extremely important going forward. That is a, a very exciting development that is happening today. So I want to just uh, sort of uh, talk about a little bit about CAR-T development, but also uh, bring out the issue of new technologies in order to modify cells uh, using gene editing. That that brings me to the second subject of what is most exciting in this field as well uh, in the area of uh, inherited diseases, monogenic uh, conditions, and that is gene therapy. There are 30 million patients that have rare diseases, 80% of the rare diseases are considered to be addressable using gene therapy. And today we have a number of different technology in which we are able to introduce uh, functional genes into patients using different 
vectors such as adeno-associated viruses, AV vectors. And there are a couple of products already approved. Uh, there's going to be an explosion of gene therapy products that can ad- address monogenic inherited diseases, diseases that involve uh, metabolic disorder, neurological condition, and many other conditions um, that are addressable by gene therapy. So I'm very excited about that. The second part is uh, really the the novel technologies uh, that are developing. I wanted to bring out the importance of gene editing, which allows uh, manufacturers to actually correct the gene of interest that is mutated in the patient and replace uh, the patient's cells with those gene-edited products. This is going to be a tremendous opportunity to develop patient-specific products to correct genes as needed, to introduce uh, even uh, novel technologies such as CAR-T into the patient's cells and transplant the patient to uh, with their own cells that are modified. So gene editing is the most important development in this, in this area, and uh, as well as gene therapy introducing functional genes uh, that can address a variety of uh, monogenic inherited diseases. Thank you, Mo. Alex, what about you? What are you most excited about? Well, I think I would echo some of Mo's comments there. I think the gene editing technology is very exciting and creates, um, from my perspective, a very interesting environment into how this will be played out in terms of budgets and care in uh, healthcare providers and healthcare uh, payer environments. I also think that it's very exciting to see the mechanisms and processes for reimbursement starting to shift as we see the shift in the products available and the way patients can be treated the processes will start to align with that because as i said earlier payers are keen to make these available they just need the tools to do it and so from my perspective it's probably a phase shift in the way health technology assessments are done uh, and that's always exciting Uh, from a professional perspective. Thank you. Doug, uh, let me come back to you uh, to close our conversation. Looking back over the years since your treatment, it's been about nine years, as you mentioned, have we made enough progress? Uh, What are you most hopeful about for yourself and for other patients? Well, just, just imagine. In 1996, I was told I had a cancer that there was no cure for that uh, my outlook was pretty dismal. What's really changed, I think, in those intervening years is hope. It's one of the things that when I talk to cancer patients that, that, I, that I try to, to get them to understand is that, well, perhaps there may not be a treatment today for their cancer. There are so many clinical trials they're ongoing to look for different ways to attack cancer using the immune system that if there isn't a cure today, if there isn't a treatment today, there may be one just around the corner. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time. 
wonderful to hear that from you, uh, Doug. And uh, that brings us to the end of our conversation today, folks. Doug, I want to thank you for sharing your very personal story and your perspective. As I mentioned, we as an industry cannot do without the insights and involvement of patients in this process. So I, along with Mo, Alex, and Paraxel, I'm most grateful for your feedback, and I thank you for your participation today, Doug. Thank you, Alberto. It's uh, it's truly a pleasure and um, privilege. Mo Hedaran, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. And I wanted to thank Doug again for bringing the patient perspective into play. I really appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo and Alex. Many thanks to you as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I am Alberto Grignolo, and this has been the latest edition of the Paracel podcast. To learn more from our experts on regulatory and access issues, visit paracel.com. And to listen to more of our episodes, you can find our podcasts on paracel.com, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. After listening, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review this episode. See you next time.